Welcome to the Alvin Galloway Show here on KRDP, 90.7 FM in the East Valley. Streaming live on Listen, the number 2, KRDP.com. On this segment of the Alvin Galloway Show is a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services titled Litigators for Affirmative Action Reflect on next steps. We know that the Supreme Court, the conservative-led Supreme Court, recently destroyed decades of precedent regarding affirmative action and college admissions policy. But the Supreme Court, with a conservative 6-3 advantage, ended that policy to try to bring equality, equity, and fairness to college admissions that would not only assist in bringing more people of color into these colleges, but also not only corporate America, but all segments of America. Moderating this segment is Ethnic Media Services Associate Editor, Pilar Moreno. Hi, I'm jazz artist Bretina, and I love listening to The Alvin Galloway Show every Sunday for conversation, information, music, and culture. So stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up on The Alvin Galloway Show. How do we see our lives? Is it everything we have? So welcome to today's Ethnic Media Service. I'm Pilar Marrero, and I'm Assistant Editor of EMS. Our topic today focuses on litigators for affirmative action, reflect on next steps. Also, we have a special guest, Representative Judy Chu, Congresswoman for the 28th District of California, will join us at the top of the hour and give a statement. We have invited litigators who argued on behalf of affirmative action before the Supreme Court to reflect on the court's ruling and its broader impact. They will also discuss possible next steps in the legal drive for racial equality or equity, including a lawsuit against legacy admissions at Harvard. In the litigators panel, we have Jean He Lee, Director of Strategic Initiatives of the Legal Defense Fund, Francisca Fajana, Director of Racial Justice Strategy at Latino Justice, John C. Yang, President and Executive Director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice AA, JC, and Chavis Jones, Associate Counsel of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law. So it has been a week or so since the Supreme Court issues, issued rulings on two lawsuits and effectively ended affirmative action programs in college and university admissions. Um, before I invite each of our panelists to reflect back on that decision, uh, we invite and warmly welcome our special guests for today. Congresswoman Judy Chu of the 28th Congressional District of California. Please welcome Congresswoman, the stage is yours. Well, thank you so much. I truly appreciate you inviting me. I'm Congress member Judy Chu. I represent the 28th Congressional District of Southern California, and I serve as chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, or KPAC. It's my honor to join today's call with our partners, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, the Legal Defense Fund, Latino Justice, and Lawyers Committee to discuss the impacts of last week's Supreme Court decision on for affirmative action and the next steps our coalitions must take. But I want to tell you that immediately after the decision, the Tri-Caucus made up of us, the Congressional Asian Pacific Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus, and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus stood together to oppose the decisions by the Supreme Court redistricting, uh, restricting the consideration of race in higher education admissions 
To be clear, these rulings are a setback for all communities of color. As we've seen with this term's decisions on affirmative action and student debt relief, the Supreme Court is more interested in making higher education attainable for primarily the wealthy and well-connected. On the other hand, the court is creating new hurdles for those from historically marginalized communities, and that includes Asian Americans. Before I entered public service, I taught at community colleges for 20 years. I know, of course, that not all students are afforded equal opportunity in our K-12 education systems. And I know that students learn best and graduate more prepared when they encounter diversity in the classroom. Holistic race conscious admissions policies allow all students, regardless of race or ethnicity, to be able to tell the full story of who they are and participate meaningfully in a thriving multiracial democracy. That's why I was so deeply distressed at the Supreme Court's decision to gut affirmative action in higher education. Let me be clear, our Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities are not a monolith. AANHPI students from low income, first generation immigrant, refugee or indigenous backgrounds who are already systematically denied equal opportunity in education will encounter even more hurdles to acceptance at higher level education institutions. That is why there is really no net positive. And that's why the Supreme Court's decision does not reflect the belief of many Asian Americans, including the majority of uh, AA and HPIs who support race conscious admissions policies. In fact, nearly 70% of Asian Americans support affirmative action and our communities have indeed historically benefited from affirmative action as well. Despite the extremist efforts to turn back time, resegregate our schools and pit the Asian American community against other communities by using us as a wedge, I refuse as chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus to let this ruling reverse the tremendous strides communities of color have made to increase equity and opportunity for all. I stand with the unified civil and human rights community, my colleagues in the Tri-Caucus, Black, Latino, Native American, and AAANHPI communities across the nation to fight for the right of every student to reach their full potential. This is where we go next. President Biden has already announced steps that the administration, including at the Department of Justice and Education, will take to promote ed educational opportunity and diversity in higher education. Alongside our Tricaucus partners, KPAC will persist in securing federal funding and support from minority serving institutions, including anapeses. We will push for rigorous oversight of federal agencies that combat discrimination in education. We will demand that higher education institutions and their administrators take immediate steps to do robust outreach to communities of color and underserved communities to ensure diversity remains central to these institutions' missions. And we will continue telling our youth, never stop pursuing your dreams and keep sharing the full stories of who you are. Thank you. Thank you so much, Congresswoman. Please come back anytime. I know you have to leave us, but Ethnic Media would love to discuss many issues with you in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now let's go to the panel of litigators. Um, first, we welcome Jean He, Jean He Lee, Director of Strategic Initiatives of the Legal Defense Fund. Uh, she will unpack the decision and what it means. Please, Ms. Lee, give us your take. Thank you so much. And thank you to the Ethnic Media Service for convening this briefing. Um, it's very important to um, have the space to talk to the ethnic media about this very important decision. Uh, first of all, um, I just wanted to give some information about the clients we represent um, in the affirmative action cases. So from, this, from the trial level through the Court of Appeals all the way to the United States Supreme Court, the Legal Defense Fund has been representing 25 
student and alumni organizations at Harvard. And they represent all of the uh, major student and alumni organizations representing Black, Latino, API, um, and Indigenous students, as well as white students. And so um, our, our clients are very much directly impacted by the Supreme Court's decision, especially in the Harvard case. Um, oh, the Legal Defense Fund also filed an amicus brief in the, in the University of North Carolina case on behalf of the Legal Defense Fund and the NAACP because there was so much discussion about the, the, the relevance of the Brown versus Board of Education decision and the affirmative action issue. And of course, the Legal Defense Fund were the lawyers who litigated Brown versus Board of Education and felt that we had a specific expertise on this issue. So I would like to begin by saying that this is a devastating opinion. It was extremely disappointing to see the United States Supreme Court turn their back on 45 years of precedent. This is precedent that has been very stable for almost five decades. Although the Supreme Court did not directly overrule its prior decisions, its decision in this case has made it extremely difficult for colleges and universities to be able to consider race as part of its holistic admissions process in order to foster the educational benefits of diversity. Um, this is something that it is, is a, a tremendous disappointment. It is a blow to efforts to advance equal opportunity and racial equality in our educational system, which suffers from tremendous, tremendous dysfunction and inequalities. Um, and so we are extremely disappointed by this decision. But we also want to be very careful to not overstate what the United States Supreme Court did in these cases. Um, this, these cases dealt solely with the affirmative action policies in higher education at Harvard and UNC. It did not deal with um, race neutral programs, either in the higher education space or the, the PK through 12 education space. And it certainly did not have anything to do with employment programs, um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility programs. Um, some of these things um, have been commented on in, in, other, in other media outlets, but I want to be very clear that this decision did not directly impact those other areas. Another very important part of the Supreme Court decision is that this, the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts made very clear that students of color may be able to talk about their experiences with race overcoming racism, perhaps their pride and their racial identity in their college and university application. But they have to tie that experience with reasons why they think that they can contribute to the university. So his, his qualification is that colleges and universities cannot consider an applicant's race solely because of their race, but instead it must be connected to some, some experience or some attribute or some reason as to why that experience with race um, would contribute to the college and university. Um, I also just want to say that uh, our clients were tremendously disappointed by this decision. Uh, many were at the Supreme Court on the day the decision came. There was also some activism at Harvard and Boston and Cambridge um, denouncing the Supreme Court decision. Um, as as uh, Congresswoman uh, Chu had said, um, our, our clients represent all racial and ethnic backgrounds at Harvard, and all of them are united in support of race conscious admissions or the consideration of race because they know the importance of racial diversity in both their educational experiences, but also their own expressions of who they are and, and what they have experienced. Um, they, uh, it's very important to note that our, our clients are not necessarily in support of Harvard because there's much that Harvard needs to do to improve uh, uh, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion on its campus. But the students are very much, in, and, and alumni 
are very much in support of, of Harvard being able to foster the diverse student body that is so essential to that Harvard education. Now that um, the race conscious admissions program has been struck down, there will be pressures on Harvard to continue to make efforts to have a diverse student body within the bounds of the law. And, um, and we are fully supportive of our clients on that, as well as other efforts to ensure that colleges and universities try to ensure a diverse student body, which is so essential. Thank you, thank you so much. So next we welcome Francisca Fajana, Director of Racial Justice Strategy of Latina Justice. Thank you so much for having me. And I echo the comments that Jin He made as well. I really appreciate the um, ethnic media services putting on this forum. Um, my comments and reflections will sort of pull some threads um, in an amicus brief that we filed before the Supreme Court in this particular case. Um, we've, Latino justice has also been litigating in the K through 12 space around these um, uh, issues of uh, diversity in uh, the educational settings. Ignoring race will not equalize a society that's racially unequal. Justice Sotomayor had it right. She and Justice Katanji Brown Jackson in their dissents remind us of our long history of segregating opportunity and the enduring racial disparities that persist. I'll refrain in the time allotted from recounting that history or reciting the contemporary racial disparities that they both highlighted. But I will share one statistic. About 21% of Latinos age 25 and older hold a bachelor's degree compared to 42% of non-Hispanic whites. That's a 20 point differential. Ignoring race or professing a superficial commitment to colorblindness will not bridge that gap. The court's decision, as Jen He pointed out, ignores almost five decades of precedent affirming the value of race conscious admissions to create pathways of opportunity. We at Latino Justice will not back down from our commitment to brace open the doors of opportunity for Latino and other students of color. For the last 50 years, we have worked tirelessly to break down barriers and support our youth to gain access to college and graduate schools. We will not be deterred from vindicating the rights of all students to bring their full selves, including their racial and ethnic identities to institutions of higher learning. We know that elite institutions are pathways to positions of power in our society. The Supreme Court itself is exhibit A. Throughout its history, the vast majority of justices have attended a handful of top law schools. So make no mistake, the court's decision is not about merit. It is not about leveling the playing field. It is not about fairness, and it is certainly not about racial justice or racial equity. We will not stand back and allow decades of progress won by hard work and perseverance to be rolled back. We will continue to support our young people in gaining access to elite and other institutions, and we will continue to support their success while they are in those institutions. There's a lot to take umbrage with in the court's decision. For one, while the court recognizes that states mandated segregation in schools, housing, employment, buses, trains, juries, and interracial marriage was enshrined in law and enforced, it characterizes the state-sanctioned segregation as a regrettable norm and dismisses it as societal discrimination that is now inconsequential to the, to the law. The court also puts forth the troubling notion that it is stereotyping to assert that a black student from an affluent household has less in common with a white student from an affluent household. In other words, their socioeconomic status is a common denominator that makes them interchangeable. The court disregards the reality that it's not about race or class. Race and class intersect for a lot of people of color and therefore compound the challenges that they face. In closing, there is one thing on which Justice, uh, Justice uh, Roberts and I, Chief Justice Roberts and I do agree. 
And that is eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Surely, surely, the Chief Justice must mean that eliminating all of it also includes and encompasses eliminating all racial disparities. Thank you for having me. This is the Alvin Galloway Show on KRDP, and we'll be back. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francisca Fajana from Latina Justice. Programming on KRDP is supported by Native Health with three locations in the Valley, including Central and Indian School in Phoenix, Dunlap and 25th Avenue in Phoenix, and Southern and Extension in Mesa. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, WIC, and wellness services for the underserved and urban Native American community. More information at 602-279-5262 or online at nativehealthphoenix.org. Bill Evans Trio. Peace. Peace. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and we return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services titled Litigators for Affirmative Action Reflect on Next Steps. Okay, now we go on to um, John C. Jang. President Executive Director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC. Hello, Mr. Yang. Good afternoon, and thank you for having us again to talk about this important topic. I'm John Yang, the President and Executive Director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC. First, let me thank my fellow panelists, Jin Yi, Francisca uh, Chavez. We've just worked so hard together and worked so well in collaboration that Although obviously the result was extremely disappointing to us, uh, it is not lost on all of us that, 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 that the work we do will continue. And that is certainly a through line that you will hear from all of us, that this is not the end of the fight. 
Rather, this is a very pivotal moment in the fight for all of us. I, I will keep my remarks short and really engage in the discussion to follow. Certainly, we were likewise very deeply disappointed by the Supreme Court decision. To be clear, as you have heard me say before, Asian Americans by a large majority support affirmative action. This has been demonstrated repeatedly in polls that we and others have conducted. So to the extent that others are blaming Asian Americans or suggesting that Asian Americans were the reason that affirmative action has been dismantled, I would ask you to correct that misinformation because among other things, that misinformation creates division within our coalition, creates division within this racial solidarity mo movement that we have. That division also has created anti-Asian hate at times. We know that discrimination against our Asian American community does exist. It has existed in the form of blaming us for COVID-19. It has existed because of the political tensions that we have with the Chinese government. So it is a moment for all of us to come together and recognize that there are absolutely disparities in K through 12 education, in higher education that we need to address together. A couple of last uh, thoughts for, for this audience. First is this notion that Justice Roberts has put forward before, this notion that we should be race blind. It seems to me that he is asking for race blindness, yet he is being blind to the effects of racism. And that is something that we need to very directly call him out on and call out others who recognize that racism exists and re yet refuse to address it. The other analogy that I would make is the fact that he recognizes and many recognize that racism is a disease that is still troubling our country, yet he is refusing the very treatment that has helped at least in part, admittedly imperfectly, to at least address some of the symptoms and help make us a more healthy country. That is what is in front of us, is how do we directly address the maladies that affect us in a way that recognizes that only by directly addressing it will we actually come to a cure. I really look forward to engaging in all of you in a discussion afterwards. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Yang. And, and, and now we welcome our last speaker for the panel, uh, Chavis Jones, Associate Counsel of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law. And he's going to talk about what's next and a little bit about the lawsuit that was uh, filed against legacy admissions in top elite universities. Mr. Jones, please go ahead. Yes, uh, thank you so much for having me. And my name is Chavis Jones. I serve as Associate Counsel at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. And I would like to echo many of the sentiments of my extraordinary colleagues and begin by saying that we were deeply disappointed by much of what we read in the 237 pages of words in SCOTUS's decision in these cases. But while we were disappointed with many of those words, those decisions and their supporters will not have the last word, but we will continue to work to ensure that these campuses are diverse uh, as best possible. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights represents a diverse group uh, from the University of North Carolina, as well as Harvard University's uh, students and alumni in the fight to defend the university's right to consider race as one of many factors in admissions. Our own David Hinojosa, the director of the Educational Opportunities Project, argued before the court on October 31st to ensure that the lived experiences of students of color were heard loud and clear. We were also involved in organizing students, alumni, and other stakeholders alongside uh, all of our partner organizations here, uh, both for the rally at SCOTUS on the day of oral arguments and since, and that work, work uh, continues to be ongoing. The Supreme Court's recent decision has dealt a blow to the current state of affirmative action, but rather than succumbing to fear, now is the time for bold action. Some institutions will be fearful of reprisals from opponents of affirmative action, but this is not, uh, this is rather a time to do what institutions of higher learning have always done best, and that is innovate. We encourage colleges and universities to enlist their best minds, to work within the law to advance the most inclusive admissions processes possible. As the court explicitly states, students of color can speak to their racialized experiences and the degree to which race has significantly played it in their lives and their lived experiences, and universities can consider these experiences in their decision-making processes. And we would like to focus on 
a few key takeaways uh, as we look towards the future in these decisions. The first is that the SCOTUS, the SCOTUS ruling rather could undermine equal opportunity, but only if we let it. The Supreme Court abandoned almost half a century of precedent and progress when it held that Harvard and UNC's admissions policies uh, violated the Equal T Protections Clause. While the tortuous, ill-founded decision does not directly outlaw race-conscious admissions, it makes it far more difficult to enact lawful policies and could further undermine opportunities and fairness in our education system, but only if we let it. And once again, this points towards the collective genius at universities uh, and institutions of higher education to really think creatively about how to enlist uh, the best minds to create broad-based uh, and diverse campuses uh, that will continue to flourish because of the innovation that will result. Number two, colleges may continue to pursue diversity through lawful means. The Supreme Court only held that Harvard and UNC's race-conscious race admissions policies violated the Equal T Protections Clause, but it did not hold that universities may no longer pursue diversity through other lawful means. Universities may continue to embed diversity goals in their missions and may aim to achieve such through permissible race-conscious and race-neutral means. Number three, DEIA efforts remain lawful and more critical than ever. The Supreme Court decision begins and ends with college admissions practices. The court's ruling did not consider diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives like support for student affinity groups. Efforts that facilitate healthy campus culture, ensure equal opportunity, and stop or inhibit ongoing racial discrimination and bias. These programs remain lawful. As Justice Jackson said, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. Number four, student stories are not censored by SCOTUS. Speaking and writing about one's own experiences and identity, whether in admissions applications or in the public square is lawful and a matter of self-determination. Colleges should not prevent students from uplifting their racialized experiences, nor does it prevent colleges and universities from inquiring about such uh, experiences in the admissions process. And lastly, SCOTUS cannot overrule our shared values. Opportunity for all remains a national imperative. If we allow it, the diluting of affirmative action threatens to undermine America's basic tenets and most cherished ideal, our multiracial democracy. More than ever, we must work together to fight for a country that fully embraces diversity, does not turn its back on diversity and turn back the clock on decades of progress and ensures equal opportunity for all students to craft the futures they deserve. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you to all of you for your participation. And I want to, I'm going to start by asking the questions about legacy. Um, because this week, a group of uh, organizations filed a lawsuit against Harvard, uh, challenging their legacy, that is legacy programs that essentially give admission automatically to the sons and daughters and descendants of alumni. So, and we know that legacy uh, group comes to a large part of the new admissions in top in, in many top universities. In in Harvard, I think it's almost like seventy percent, and seventy percent of those are white. So, can any of you or who wants to talk about what's wrong with legacy and whether or not it will be helpful in any way to students of color to fight legacy admissions? Anyone, please go ahead. Well, I will begin by saying that um, as, as, as Chavis Jones had, had said so eloquently, it is really imperative for colleges and universities to look at other ways of fostering diversity without having the race conscious admissions, the consideration of race that it was allowed previously. And, and certainly legacy admissions is one area that has been criticized and rightly so. Um, you know, there, there are many um, other areas uh, in addition to legacies. I also want to point out standardized, the use of standardized tests, um, the reliance on AP courses and, and courses like calculus, which is not offered to all high school students across the country, um, the um, advantages of certain athletes, um, especially athletics that require significant financial resources to participate in. 
and also um, extracurricular activities that are only available for people with, with connections and resources. So I think the legacy conversation is really important, but we should be also looking at a whole spectrum of inequalities in the admissions process to higher education, because it is certainly broken and not fair. And having lost this important tool of considering race, we should put everything on the table. And as Chavis said, think about innovation. And part of that innovation would be um, considering the removal of legacy admissions. Thank you. Anyone else wants to chime in on that? Or we move on to the next question. Sure. I mean, I can chime in um, and say a couple of words, um, uh, express a couple of thoughts. I mean, to me, what's, I agree with the points that Jen, he just made that um, all um, potential barriers should be on the table and closely examined. But the problem with legacies, as, as I see it, is that legacies tend to operate almost as a set aside. Um, they're not necessarily quotas, but they pretty much operate like quotas. And then if you think about the fact that legacies inure to the benefit of folks who had a jump start in this race, the opportunity race, it seems patently unfair to continue to marginalize folks who didn't start the race at the same time because they were intentionally and expressly and explicitly excluded. So yes, there's something to be said about looking at legacies. Um, and I'm um, personally gratified that the folks at the Lawyers Committee um, in Boston have brought this litigation and filed it with the Office for um, Civil Rights. And to the extent that um, the Office for Civil Rights OCR does some investigation and can um, confirm and, and um, um, affirm a lot of the data that was included in that complaint, the legacy admissions need to be um, not only closely examined, but maybe um, maybe they need to come to an end. I mean, it, it really is a legacy of discrimination to continue to have that kind of set aside that is not open to other students whose parents are not, whose parents don't have the same um, resources to be donors to elite institutions. Thank you. Yes, go ahead. In on it. What yeah. both Jinhee and Francisca are talking about is really defining what it means to have merit to attend a university and whether our, our current mechanisms for defining merit, such as standardized tests, such as the fact that legacies might add to the university, such as scholarships for athletes, really are what we are trying to measure when we determine that these students have merit to come to, come to this school. Because if we have a broader discussion of merit and circumstances that cause students to be who they are, then I think we have a broader more robust discussion of how the, the, the student population should look. I think a very important issue is something I heard from a friend on Twitter. He was like, well, you know, but we really need to start with this lowering standards to allow people in. We're not talking about lowering standards as I understand it. Uh, people are not just allowed because they're black or Latino. They have the same grades. They have the same abilities. They're just given some additional consideration because of their disadvantages. Isn't that correct? Or where before this? That, that's correct. And I think there was a question that was addressed to me about, uh, sort of, let me pull that up, um, how sort of racial categorizations are increasingly complicated. That's absolutely correct. And to be clear, how these universities are applying these uh, these tips, so to speak, were not automatic tips such that if, as long as you check a box for race, you automatically got plus points or something along those lines. I think there's a lot of misinformation of how the current policy was even used. Rather, people still had to explain sort of how these things, of how their different circumstances affected themselves. So I think we, we need to have a more clear discussion about all of these factors. But to be clear, race has played a role. A person that in similar social economic status uh, from a, the same high school getting the same test score, I would posit that an African-American that did that probably suffered greater hardships, suffered greater stereotypes in that school, assuming that school had very few African-Americans and had to do more to get to where they did than a similarly situated Caucasian man. I completely Thank agree. You. I was going to say really quickly that 
in agreeing with John, we have to completely upend conventional notions of merit uh, and this idea of a pure meritocracy. Uh, we understand that institutions have often over relied on standardized tests uh, that have pr been proven to underpredict the success of black, brown, and other minorities in higher education. I think the fact that the legacy admissions policies went unchallenged all these years by those who claim to be opponents of affirmative action, um, like Ed Bloom, uh, proves that they weren't truly against policies that affirmatively look towards uh, including particular students. They didn't have problems with those who had the means or the, uh, the family ties to be legacies. They had problems with students of color, in particular black and brown students uh, who did not have those means. And so it, it shows the hypocrisy of this moment that these legacy admissions policies have lived for so long without being challenged. But this is a moment uh, of opportunity to innovate and to really think critically, uh, to use our minds to think about what merit means in a modern American democracy. This is the Alvin Galloway Show on KRDP, and we'll be back. The ARP Fraud Watch Network can help you keep yourself and your family safe from fraud and scams. To learn more, visit aarp.org backslash Fraud Watch Network for news and tips on how to spot common scams and to learn about and report scams in your area. Visit aarp.org backslash Fraud Watch Network. Wes Montgomery, A Day in the Life. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and we return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services titled Litigators for Affirmative Action Reflect on Next Steps. Thank you to all. Um, somebody in the panel said, Oh, this is just about admissions in the education. However, in Missouri, the Attorney General has already ordered universities to remove all scholarship programs that consider race. Seems to me that we're starting a slippery slope to other programs that consider race and maybe even organizations that fight about race. Um, how, do you, how do you keep that from happening? Well, 
I think what's important to um, to differentiate is the impact of this decision and how it, it mandates certain things that must occur in colleges and universities and all of these other challenges that have been happening. So what happened with the Missouri Attorney General, certainly there even before the Supreme Court issued its decisions, there have been attacks on DEI programs. We've seen states like Texas and Florida pass state laws that ban DEI, DEI programs. We have seen um, attacks on critical race theory um, in higher education. We've seen um, attacks on inclusive curriculum at the K through 12 level. So these are things that are happening all across the country. What's very important is that thus far, all of these legal challenges have not been successful. So just because the Supreme Court issued its opinion on a separate matter, which is about the consideration of race in higher education does not necessarily mean that these other cases are going to be going to be won by the plaintiffs. And so we shouldn't allow these challenges to win before they're even before they're even filed, essentially. And and and, as, and I think it is really important for people to understand that a lot of these challenges have failed thus far. And it's really important to go through the court process and to allow the courts to, to decide these issues before we predetermine what the outcome is going to be. And especially because the issues are very, very different. Because when we're talking about affirmative action in higher education, everybody, there was no dispute that race was specifically considered as part of a holistic admissions process. When we're talking about DIA, we're talking about race neutral efforts to foster diversity in, in high school, for example, specialized high schools. When we're talking about these other programs, that is a completely different um, area of law and it is not the express use of race in making decisions. Yeah. Probably politicians will take their own initiatives and do their own thing like the AG of Missouri did. Peter White has a really interesting question that also was in the New York Times recently, uh, big, a big story in the New York Times saying, hey, it's no big deal because, you know, most people of color don't, you know, this only refers to top elite universities. It doesn't really harm all the other universities. Is this true? I mean, this affirmative, so I guess, I guess the story in the New York Times said, well, you know, people of color really don't go to this, you know, not, not a lot, they don't take a lot of people of color anyway before, even with affirmative action. I think that's a very narrow understanding of what um, diversity and higher education means. Now, certainly not everyone goes to college and not everyone goes to these very competitive and selective colleges, but for, for, first of all, these selective colleges are pipelines to important positions in American society. For example, the University of North Carolina is a flagship university and their alumni have become governors and attorney generals and really important people both in North Carolina and across the country. And certainly Harvard, you know, has been a country, I mean, has been a, a, a university that has produced a lot of influential and prominent people in American life whether it be science or business or politics and so forth. And so it is essential for our multiracial democracy for students of all races to have access to those opportunities. But it also says something about the importance and relevance of race when we're talking about education, whether it's in Harvard, in a Harvard classroom, whether it's in a kindergarten classroom, it is so essential that students be exposed to, to um, other students of different races, different backgrounds, to be challenged, to be learning about different types of people. And that is a principle that really goes beyond just selective colleges and universities. Right. Um, Mireya Olivera as, uh, is asking Francisca in particular, do you have statistics on how many indigenous people have university degrees versus white people? Now, it's important to bring out the conversation about indigenous um, people in the United States and whether or not they have access. Do you have that's a really good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so the, the statistics that I um, alluded to earlier during my remarks, I actually got from the Census Bureau and I believe it was 2021 census data. I'm fairly certain that it also contains um, uh, statistics for uh, indigenous population and the African-American population as well. I just extracted out the Latino population and compared it to the non-Hispanic white uh, population. But I mean, I could take um, 
I could take his uh, name and information and sort of forward that um, uh, the statistics to him after I've had a chance to sort of look you at. You can it. send it to us, and we will okay. send them off. Okay, sounds good. Uh, Henrietta Burroughs, do you want to ask one of your questions? Probably not the ones that have already been answered. Yes, uh, several of them have already been answered, but one that I would like to focus on is the one about colleges and universities can now use other means to diversify, but will they now that the highest court in the country isn't demanding that they do so? They might just say, well, you know, it, it's not worth the trouble considering all that we will have to go through and some of the criticisms we might get when we do use other means to diversify. Well, it is in the colleges and universities' own interest to diversify. Our country is diversifying. If you want the best talent in the country, you need to go to all of the communities where that talent is. So in that sense, in talking to many colleges and universities, the sense that we get is that they, they are concerned about this decision, absolutely concerned about the decision, and will seek to continue diversity efforts. That said, I agree that many colleges and universities may become gun shy, for lack of a better term, or conservative in this, what I mean, not politically, but in, in terms of not wanting to rock the boat, fearing lawsuits and the like. And that is where organizations like ours, that is where alumni of the, uh, the those schools themselves, all of us need to continue to speak up and demand that these colleges and universities do not use this decision or do not inadvertently allow this decision to restrict opportunities for students. Yeah, I'm um, gonna add really quickly that study after study has proven that diversity contributes to innovation. And so it, it's once again to what John just said, it really contributes uh, to the institution's best interest to enlist the possibility of a diverse campus. Uh, in addition to that, I think we have something that we did not have 45 years ago, and that is a sleeping army of affinity-based alumni groups, Black, Brown, Asian-American uh, alumni groups that are broad-based at this point, that are huge, who could really leverage uh, their power with the institutions to push them to ensure that the posterity of these institutions are diverse. And so I think we really have to work with alumni associations to really think critically about uh, why they exist existentially and what impact they can have on these institutions as they move forward. Thank you so much. One thing that I found puzzling in the decisions uh, was the fact that they made an exception for military schools. Now they said, okay, we need, the military schools are for officers, right? They're the ones, you know, the military at the top, the ones that lead the platoon, let's put it that way. So they said, oh, it's it's necessary for the officers to um, to be represent, you know, representative of the soldiers. So therefore, they do think this is valuable in order to get equity. And at the same time, they do want to keep the military diverse. Do any of you have any insight as to how 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 does this make sense in the context of the larger decision? Anyone? Sure, I, I will try to answer this question. <laughs> um, well, I think one of the reasons why at least the court presented as to why they excluded military academies is because military academies were not part of the cases. The cases were specific to UNC and Harvard. And so, and I think that's an important point because there may be other colleges and universities that have very different admissions programs um, from as compared to Harvard and UNC that may not be within this decision. So we just don't know. So that was one reason. I think the other though, is exactly what you were saying, is that there are obviously important considerations, important benefits to having diverse student bodies. And for the military academies, one of the um, one of the very, very compelling arguments made, and also by the um, former military, um, you know, as well, is that diversity is something that is is that 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 is important to national security. That our military works better when it's representative of the people in, in our country. Um, again, going back to innovation and working well and, and being the best, having a diverse uh, pool is essential to that. Of course, the Supreme Court decided not to directly address 
that point that came up, but it is, it is very striking that they did kind of carve that out. And it also shows that there may be ways of, of, um, of kind of, of making this, uh, this Supreme Court decision not as broad as many people think it might be. I guess that's that's good news. Uh, I, I tell you that on the street, the interpretation of that exception was different. It was like, yeah, they want us for the military. They don't want us for the university. Okay, Sunita Soraji, do you have a question? Uh, yes. Um, so the UC system in California has the top 9% where um, students from every public high school in uh, across the state uh, the top 9% are guaranteed a spot at a UC. It may not be the UC of their choice, but they're guaranteed a spot somewhere in the UC system. Is this um, uh, something that could work across the country? Can other um, uh, states take on uh, same type of uh, uh, policy? Anyone? I think it's easier to have that kind of program in a state school when you're looking at all of the um, high schools within a state. I think for a national university like Harvard, that would be very difficult because they're bringing in students from all across the country. But we've certainly seen programs like that in Texas, for example. And so, um, and 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 interestingly, this in the Supreme Court decision, they noted that they had previously approved the University of Texas's program, which was looking at, you know, the top certain percentage, um, as well as a small a consideration of race, because that wasn't sufficient. So I think these are some of the uh, questions that we will need to ask about, you know, again, just as I said before, what kind of admissions program are within the bounds of this decision and which programs are not because there may be wide variations as to what colleges and universities are trying to do. Uh, Sima Gupta, please ask your question. Yes, hi, so I'm Vansh, I'm actually filling in for Sima Gupta. Um, so okay. the question I had was, you know, one of the things we've noticed in the kind of the Gen Z generation who are either in the age of going to college uh, or uh, they've already been through university system and they think that you know institutionalized education altogether is not even worth it anymore and the argument is that you know certifications and experience the benefits that you get from that outweigh the cost of actually attending college for these students so my question really is what is the overall impact of affirmative action for these kind of for if this is a rhetoric that's being followed and will it force universities to start creating separate programs to disadvantage students to encourage them to apply or even try to go to these elite universities. What's the, what's the solution? That's essentially what I'm trying to ask. Well, the first to answer your question is that uh, this is why a number of us continue to talk about the Supreme Court's uh, opinion portion by Chief Justice Roberts that talks about that. It is appropriate to talk about your race and your racial experiences in your college essay because we are very, very concerned that students reading this opinion or hearing the press around this opinion will be discouraged from applying at all. And especially it would be the disadvantaged students, the marginalized students. That should not be the message that any of us are carrying. Yes, we will require the innovation that Chavez talks about in terms of creating policies, whether it's a 9% policy, whether it's the Michigan policies, to try to rectify some of the imbalances caused by this decision. And that will be on the universities working and hopefully in coordination with all of us to come up with those policies. So yes, universities will have to create new programs, innovative programs to ensure that they have the balance, to ensure that they have the rich diversity that they themselves need to succeed. Could they put more of an emphasis on class, given the fact that I, I've seen numbers that indicate that classes, the class gap has increased more than the race gap. And of course, as Francisca said, in many ways, they come together, but class seems to be one of the more consequential um, in, in, in educational success. I think the, the, SAP, um, the standardized test scores show that. I don't think that we should choose one versus the other. I think that thinking about this in an intersectional way, the way that race inter interacts with class is really important. And I think it's really important to underscore what John mentioned, and that is that 
students can still bring their racialized experiences to bear in their personal statements. They can still speak to how race has impacted uh, their journeys until they get to higher education. And so I think that our collective organizations and all of the uh, journalists featured here should really, really push this message that uh, opponents want this decision to have a chilling effect, but it does not have to. We really must let young folks know across the country that they should still apply to these institutions and that they should still bring their full selves to the application process. Anyone and else? I guess the only thing that I would add to what um, Chavez just um, articulated is if you disaggregate data by class, if whether it's you're looking at wealth or you're looking at poverty statistics, there is um, the reality is that Latinos, African-Americans, and Southeast Asians in particular are almost always not performing as well as their white counterparts. So class is not a substitute for race. It is really an and. Um, and I think, you know, I completely echo what um, Chavez just said, that a student shouldn't have to choose about talking about their class versus their race. It is both. Thank you so much. Um... All right, Jaya had a question, and I think Mr. Yang already answered it uh, regarding, hold on. The policies were unfair. They were also anachronistic and overly simplistic. So out of, okay. Um, Farhad Manju, a New York Times columnist, wrote this morning that the policies, quote, were unfair. They were also anachronistic and overly simplistic, out of step with America, in which racial categorization is an increasingly complicated endeavor where more people than ever identify as belonging to multiple racial groups. I don't know if there's an, if there's a question there. Um and 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 John really did comment on that. Uh, I don't know, anyone has any comment about that? I think that just because um, race is a very complicated issue and, you know, we are becoming a more multicultural country and, um, you know, and, and, and as we've all acknowledged that the, um, the categories include a broad range, a broad spectrum of people and experiences, but just because it's complicated doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. And that's what I think the Supreme Court has done in this decision is making the whole concept of race irrelevant. And that's certainly not the case because race is very much an important part of everybody's life, you know, whether throughout their lives. And it has such an important um, and it continues to have an important effect on people's opportunities. And so, you know, to kind of pretend that race doesn't matter because it's a complicated issue is also it's just kind of ignoring the realities of the world. Just because it's complicated doesn't mean that we should just, you know, kind of ignore it and put it aside. In fact, I think that means that we should actually talk about race more and perhaps improve upon the various categories, perhaps recognize more ethnicities, which some, you know, many organizations do to kind of recognize the, um, the diversity within these kind of more traditional racial categories. Okay, we're about to close, one... but Sunita had another question. Oh, Francisca, you want to say something? No, no, no. I'm just going to make the point real quickly that um, the, the, the data sort of belies the fact that race doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic indicator you're looking at, whether it's housing, employment, the criminal legal system. It doesn't really matter what data you focus on. Race matters. There are racial disparities. And until and unless we address all those racial disparities, race will continue to matter. Race does matter. Okay. Um, we are closing, but uh, Sunita has a very important question. Sunita, go ahead with your question and then we'll just have closing thoughts. Yeah, I wanted to ask, is there data on how well affirmative action students do once they're admitted? Um, what is the level of retention? How many of them graduate? And do we need to move the conversation beyond merely admission to support and retention levels once a student is admitted to a university. You can include closing thoughts in that. <laughs> I think it's difficult to have data on students who benefited from affirmative action because again, affirmative action is not a quota. So it's not as if a certain percentage of students are admitted because of 
their race. They look at, they're, looked, they're looked at it in a, in a holistic way. It's one of many, many considerations. So it's difficult to have quantifiable data that says, you know, here are the students who benefited from affirmative action. That being said, I think there have been many studies showing that um, standardized tests, for example, are not necessarily a, an accurate indicator of people's success in college or in, in their careers, for example. And so, again, going back to the whole question of merit and what are, what, what are the kind of the indicators of merit that colleges, universities look at? And are they really indicators that will predict people's success? Or are they are they indicators that we just have relied on for many years without really without the sufficient basis and, and resulting in a lot of inequalities in terms of access to um, educational opportunities? Thank you. Final thoughts, everyone. Yeah, I'm not aware of any um, specific data on the question that you asked, um, Sunita. But there is, there are um, articles that have sort of. Um, discuss the um, benefits to folks who self-identify as having benefited from affirmative action, right? So one of the Supreme Court justices, you know, is somebody who sort of talks about the fact that he benefited from affirmative action, but now is very anti-affirmative action. And there are lots of other um, um, uh, prominent uh, leaders who explicitly and expressly identify themselves as beneficiaries of affirmative action and what it meant for them, not only them, but for their families as well. Uh, Mr. Yan Zhang, John, any final thoughts? I think two thoughts. First is the fight is all over only if we believe it is over. Uh, there, there are so many areas where we need to continue to have these discussions about race, to have these discussions explicitly, even when it's hard even when it's complicated. When we believe that the fight is lost, when we believe that the Supreme Court has had its final say, that's when we retain that status quo that Henrietta talked about, which is for some what people are trying to do. Number two is, especially for the younger generation, to believe that their own demography, demography is their destiny. We are becoming a more multicultural society. We need to continue to embrace that, not shy away from that. Again, including all those hard conversations that that will bring. Thank you. Shavis Jones, final thoughts? Yes, um, I, I think it's important to underscore the fact that the Supreme Court does not have the last word. Uh, some institutions, some individuals, some communities will be fearful of reprisals from opponents of affirmative action, but this is not a time to lean into fear. But we must do what institutions have always done best, and that is innovate to really think creatively with our collective genius to come up with ways to ensure that our tomorrow looks more diverse uh, than it did today. And our democracy and our tomorrows depend on us really working to ensure that that reality becomes true. And so I really hope uh, that we, not, we do not uh, fall victim and pray to fear, but that we find a moment to see this as an opportunity and lean into uh, the great, 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 tomorrow that can be possible if we lean into diversity. You have been listening to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. We thank Ethnic Media Services that continues to bring us pertinent information that affects our lives every day. To hear this segment of the Alvin Galloway show in its entirety, visit our Facebook page, The Alvin Galloway Show, and listen to our podcast or search for our podcast on Spotify, Anchor, wherever you find your favorite podcast show, you'll find The Alvin Galloway Show. Remember, today is a great day to make somebody's day great. We'll see you next week. Be blessed.